0: Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm gonna read it to us and then we'll start unpacking it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him be gone Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold the angels came and were ministering to him. Look at verse 1 and we're going to spend a little bit of time right now dealing with what it says here in verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We're going to talk about how the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, before we even get into the deep theology about that, I want to just show you that this is a similar pattern. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. God has a pattern of doing this. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, You'll see that God led the nation of Israel right after their time in slavery in Egypt. He led them into the wilderness intentionally. Deuteronomy chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers... And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you, and He let you hunger, and He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. And know then in your heart that is a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, uh, I'm not gonna take the time to break this passage down. I just want you to see though that when the nation of Israel was, was young and new, God led them into the wilderness for three purposes to humble them, to test them, and to teach them how to listen to him and to follow his word. By the way, how'd they do? They didn't do too good, did they? Now, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is led also into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. Now, some people have a hard time with that because they think, well, why would the Spirit of God lead him into temptation? Doesn't Jesus teach us in Matthew chapter 6 that we're to pray to the Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? Why would the Spirit lead them into temptation? Well, we're going to break that down and show you scripturally, looking at, as you know, my desire is to teach you not just the book of Matthew, but the whole Bible using the book of Matthew. So we're going to use scripture to get our understanding about this, first and foremost, and you know Don't have to turn there. Write it down. You can double check it later on. In James chapter one verse thirteen, the scripture is very clear that God tempts no one. God cannot be tempted with evil, and He tempts no one. So, God is not tempting Jesus, but God is leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. That's something very important you have to understand. All right. So first and foremost, God does cannot tempt anyone and will not tempt anyone. But number two, I want you also to notice this. God does control when Satan's allowed to tempt us. I just quoted from you from Matthew chapter six, but turn over there real quick and look at verse thirteen. Matthew chapter six, verse thirteen. In the template for prayer, what we like to call the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father, and He teaches us in verse thirteen that we are to say something along this line and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now I want you to stick with me here, as I'm going to try to explain this. God would never ask us to ask Him not do something. That way he was incapable of doing. For example, can God lie? So would, it, would God ever ask us to ask him never to lie? No, he would never do that. It would, it'd be stupid to have him teach us to ask him, "Please do God, don't lie," when it's impossible for God to lie. So if God is teaching us to ask him, "Don't lead me into temptation, guess what? It's possible that He might. So don't don't miss this. God doesn't tempt anyone, but he uses Satan for his purposes. And sometimes God allows Satan to tempt us. God controls that. And that's why he teaches us, hey, Father, please don't lead me into temptation. But if you do deliver me from the evil one, go to Luke chapter 22. Let me show you a little bit more along that line. In Luke 22, look at verses 31 through 34. Jesus is speaking here and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. By the way, that word you in the, uh, there in the original text is in the plural. In other words, Satan is asked to have all of you. Some of your translations say Satan is asked instead of demanded. Some of your translations say has asked. That's fine too. But he's asked to, to have all of you, to, to tempt all of you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, That word you is in the singular. That's why some of your translations will add the word Simon. The original text doesn't have that third Simon, but it's been added sometimes to help you understand that in this time, Jesus is saying, but I prayed for you, Simon. In other words, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat, and I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. Peter, of course, says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, actually, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Satan asked God for permission to tempt all of the the disciples. Jesus prayed for Peter that he wouldn't quit when he fails this test, and Peter says, I'm not going to fail the test. He says, actually, you're going to fail the test. But don't miss the fact that Satan asked for permission, God said, yes. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 it says, "No temptation has overtaken you That is not common to man. In other words, whatever temptation you're going through, you're not the only one that's experiencing it. Don't let Satan fool you that you're the only one that struggles with this. It's common. Secondly, it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Don't miss this. He said, first of all, the temptations you're going through, you're not the only one, so don't let Satan lie to you on that one. Secondly, God's not going to allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. Stop for a second. Has anybody ever heard preachers or people say, God will never give you more than you can bear? Have you ever heard people say that? Well, guess what? That's not true. The Bible says here that God won't allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. But the Bible says that God will definitely give you more than you can bear because everything's more than we can bear. Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. We need him for everything. Don't think there's anything you can bear. People say, well, God will never give me more than I can bear. Yes, he will. Life is more than we can bear apart from Christ. But he won't allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way to escape. Why does it sound like God is actively involved in my temptation? Because he is. Is he tempting you? No. But Satan has a purpose in temptation. And Satan's purpose is to take you away from God. God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to use what you're good at, Satan, and I'm going to let you do it. I'll set the parameters. We see the same thing with Job. God sets the parameters. He won't allow more than they're able to bear, and he'll also provide a way to escape, and he says, God says, your purposes are to pull this person away from me through this trial. I'm going to use it to bring them closer to me. And that's what we need to understand, is that when God allows these things to come into our lives, he teaches us to say, Father, you control whether or not I'm tempted. Please don't lead me into temptation. But if you say yes, give me the victory over the evil one. You know, for years, people love to quote James chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, um, resist the devil and he'll flee. You ever heard that? Actually, that's not what the verse says. It's submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee. God's purpose is to draw us to him in the temptation and then Satan leaves, not because of us resisting him, but because of Jesus as we run to him. So God's purpose is to draw us closer to him. That's why we need, go to Ephesians chapter 6, when the trials come and the temptations come, we need the armor of God. Look closely again now at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 17. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Don't miss that. I've dealt with too many Christians over the years that when I say, how are you doing? They say, I'm doing the best I can. I'm hanging in there. I'm doing, I'm working hard. I'm I'm trying to remain faithful. You're already making it harder on yourself than God ever intended. And by the way, you can't do it. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the, excuse me, the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Again, Paul says when you're getting attacked by the enemy, don't forget God allowed him. God has a purpose to draw you closer to Him during this time. Don't let Satan's purposes be accomplished and have you go away from Him during this time. But you need to put on God's armor, submit yourself to God, and then you'll be able to have victory as God gives you the victory, not as you fight Him on your own. Because we fight against two. Look, look again at the description. Who are we fighting against when we have these spiritual battles? Cosmic powers, Cosmic powers over this present darkness. Let's be honest, folks. It's a realm, we don't even want to mess with, correct? Way more powerful than us. I wouldn't even try to mess with it. In Matthew chapter 26, go to Matthew chapter 26, look at verses 36 through 41. Jesus, in the hours right before he goes to the cross, is again enduring a very harsh time of temptation from the enemy to the point that the enemy's trying to keep him from going to the cross. In Matthew 26, verses 36 through 41, look at what he says. It it says, uh, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Actually, that Greek word means stay awake. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's going to be important later on tonight. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When the temptation comes we're supposed to do what? Run to God. Pray. Run to God. By the way, you remember back in Genesis chapter 50, the end of uh, uh, the, the, the book of Genesis, Joseph, as you know, at this point, having been treated bad by his brothers, he uh, is now in power in Egypt, and his dad dies, and the brothers are all afraid now that they, once dad's dead that he's going to kill him. And they go to him and they said, look, please, please don't kill us. And Joseph was... He was hurt by that, that they didn't understand his heart for them. But he said, you guys meant what you did for evil. God meant it for good. So, folks, I've begun to... It's been really helpful for me when temptations come into my life. My first thought is Satan had to go to my father for permission to even come and tempt me. My father has said yes for his purposes to bring me closer to him. Satan's purposes are to draw me away I'm going to go to my father. And that's where you start to see victory. But now let me also point out something to you. Go back to Matthew chapter 4 and look at verse 2. It says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him. And then he said, if you're the son of God, which we're going to get into in just a little bit, Satan comes at us when and where we're the weakest. I don't want you to miss this. Satan comes when and where we're the weakest. I'm a competitor. I like to play all different kinds of sports and different types of games. And if you and I ever compete in anything, I'm gonna say before we start, say we're playing ping pong. I'm gonna say, let's just hit the ball back and forth a little bit just to get loose. I'll just say, you know, I wanna get loose, but I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't need to get loose. I know how to play ping-pong, I've played a lot of ping-pong. What I'm doing by hitting it back and forth is I'm finding out where you're weak. All I'm doing is hitting some to your backhand, some to your forehand. I'm gonna spin a couple, I'm gonna put a top spin on you, I'm gonna put a reverse spin on you, and I just wanna find out, what do you have trouble handling? I'm trying to find where you're weak. So when the game starts, guess what? If you're not really good at the backhand, I'm gonna be making you hit a lot of your shots with your backhand. Say we play basketball. I'm going to say, you know, let's just get loose and shoot a couple. Why don't we play a game of pig? Before we play one-on-one, let's play a game of pig or a game of horse, just to shoot a little. But actually, what I'm going to be doing is shooting some inside shots, see if you can shoot with your left hand. I'm going to shoot some deep shots, and I'm going to find out where are you strong, where are you weak. And then when the game starts, I'll know how to win because I'll find where your weakness is. Satan knows where you're weak. That's why you need to put on the full armor of God because you might have parts of the armor on, But the areas where you're not wearing God's armor, guess what? That's where he's going. Did you all notice one of the parts of the armor was the helmet of salvation? Let me ask you a question, those of you that have been a Christian for any length of time, or even a short period of time. Has Satan ever messed with you about whether or not you're really saved? He's gone at us all there, hasn't he? That was one of the worst two years of my life. I've been a Christian for a long time. I was actually on staff at a church. I was one of eight pastors of a big church in New Orleans. And Satan took me through a two-year period of, are you really saved? Yeah, you prayed a prayer when you were six years old or whatever, I think I was eight. Uh, And uh, did you really mean it? For two years, he worked me over until I put on that helmet of salvation and put it on tight. He can't mess with me there anymore. But he attacked me where I was weak. And Satan comes at Jesus when he's at his weakest. By the way, why did the father lead him into the wilderness. Satan has a purpose to draw him away from the Father. You're going to see God has a purpose as well. Don't try to answer the question of what God's purpose was of leading Jesus into the wilderness. That'll hopefully become clear as we go on a little bit later tonight. Now, Jesus is going to teach specifically about fasting in chapter 6. So we're not going to go into a study tonight about the fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. We'll deal with fasting when we get to chapter 6. So eat all you can between now and then. All right. Actually, it's not going to be that bad. So, But I also want you to notice closely, look at verses 3 and 6. Notice how G- Satan's attack on Jesus is on his deity. This is important. Look at verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God. Look at verse 6. And he said to him, if you are the son of God. Now, many of us have probably heard lots of teaching on this passage of scripture. It's a famous passage of scripture. And we've heard preachers talk about three cute little things about the temptations. And those are all true. But I want to go deeper than that tonight. And actually, as I dug into this, I came to realize I think all three temptations, even though they take on different forms, are all the same temptation." Satan is trying to accomplish one thing in all three temptations. And that's, listen, to get Jesus to rely on his deity and not his humanity. Hopefully you understand that Jesus, when he walked on this earth, was 100% God and 100% man. But he has to, as we're going to see from the scriptures tonight, in order to be the sinless sacrifice, to be the perfect sacrifice for man, he has to live as a human without sin. If he just lived in his godhood, sin wouldn't be a problem. Remember James chapter 1 verse 13 I told you to look up later on? God can't be tempted. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And you're going to see in just a little bit, it's extremely important that Jesus, when he lives his life on this earth, he lives it as a human. He was God. Don't miss that. There are people out there who teach that he laid aside his godness and wasn't God during that time period. No, he was God the whole time. But as you're going to see in a little bit, he empties himself and he takes the form of a servant. And Jesus lives his whole time on the earth. Totally submissive to the Father's plan and purpose and will. He does nothing of his own will. He, as a human, doesn't claim his deity, if you understand. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Go to Philippians chapter 2. That's why Satan comes and says, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you do these things? By the way, did Satan know whether or not Jesus was the Son of God? Of course he did. Do you know from the scriptures that when Jesus walked on the earth, the de- legion of demons in that one man saw him and they said, we know who you are, Jesus, the Son of God, Son of the Most High. Satan knew who he was. I mean, Jesus had made him. He knew who he was. But he's attacking his deity and saying, well, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you just show it? Why don't you exercise that authority but look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. We'll come back to this passage later tonight as well. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus lived on this earth not exercising his deity unless the father allowed it. He lived as a human so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verses 5 through 16. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere. By the way, isn't that awesome? The Hebrew writer says, "Um, I don't remember exactly where it is. Isn't that awesome? And he quotes from Psalm 8. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus... We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, sorry, the father, he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then quotes a couple of Old Testament passages, one in Isaiah 8, another one in Psalm 22, about that. Jump down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things... "...that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore, don't miss this, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. There's a lot of answers to the question of why the father led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. One of them is so that he could experience everything we experience. So that he could defeat the devil by living without sin and be the perfect sacrifice. And he had to be made like us in every way. So Satan knows if I can get Jesus to not rely on the Father, but to do things in his own authority without the Father's permission, he will be disobedient to the Father, which is a sin. And if I can get him to sin once... He can't be the sinless sacrifice. So, folks, let me just tell you, does Satan come after us a few times? Don't you think that Satan went after Jesus pretty hard? Because if he can just get him to sin once, he can't be that sacrifice. So he comes to him, and he says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. By the way, was Jesus able to turn stones into bread? He's God. We even know in Matthew chapter 14 or Mark chapter 6, whichever gospel story you want, John chapter 6, I think it's Luke chapter 9, we know the stories of Jesus turning the five loaves and two fish into much, much more. He's capable because he's God. He says, if you are the Son of God, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? In other words, why don't you... Meet your own need and not wait on the Father to meet it. By the way, has anybody, any of us been tempted along that way? Many times throughout our lives, haven't we? When the Bible says to wait on God. When the Bible says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. When the Bible says that we are to wait, those who wait upon God, He'll renew their strength. The Bible teaches that we are to be dependent on Him for everything. And didn't Jesus teach us in Matthew 6? And you say, I don't know, we haven't gotten there yet. And, but we will, hopefully, unless Jesus comes and gets us between now and then. In the Lord's Prayer, doesn't He teach us to say, give us today our daily bread? We're to be trusting in God for everything. But we have a tendency sometimes to put our faith in the credit card instead of waiting on God. Well, I had to do something. Isn't that the sin that got Saul in trouble and he lost his kingship? Because he was told to wait until Samuel got there. But it looked like Samuel wasn't going to show up. And so he offered the sacrifice himself, which wasn't, he wasn't allowed to do. Folks, let me just tell you, Satan comes to Jesus and says, you don't have to wait on God. You can take care of it yourself. Thank God Jesus said, no, I'll wait on God. Was he capable of fixing it? Sure but he didn't this is a hard thing for us to grasp we're getting into a deep deep theology here it's called the kenosis If you want to go to seminary the kenosis is Jesus emptying of himself that's the Greek word for the emptying in Philippians chapter 2 the kenosis the big wrestling matches what did he empty himself of how much God did, was there and how much did, did he have full knowledge did it, how much of him did he did he lose I mean he definitely couldn't be everywhere at once because he's now in a human body. But yet at the same time, we see in John chapter one, around verse 43, that Jesus told Nathanael that he saw him underneath the tree before so-and-so came to him. And the guy was like, whoa, you are God. So how much did, we don't know. Let me just tell you to save yourself a lot of bellyache. Don't sit around trying to figure out how much God how much man, how much he knew, how much he didn't know. Because there are times it appears he doesn't know. When he's in that crowd of people and the woman touched him, he said, Who touched me? But there's other times we know he knows exactly what's going to happen before it happens. Like God. Here's the deal we do know this much. Even though he was 100% God, and in some way he limited himself and didn't take full advantage of his deity. He lived totally dependent on the Father and only did what the Father said to do when the Father said to do it and how the Father said to do it. And whenever he did anything, he let the Father do it through him. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 14. Look at verse 10. John chapter 14. Look at verse 10. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. When the Father did his works through Jesus, was it the Father doing it through Jesus, or was it Jesus doing it through Jesus? That, that's where we have to be careful, because now you're trying to separate God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. we talked about that. You're going to hurt yourself trying to do that, because God's one, even though he manifested himself in three parts. But what I want you to grasp tonight, hopefully you grasp this, is that Jesus lived totally dependent on the Father, and only did what the Father said. There were times, I believe, he exercised his godly authority, but only when the father said he could. Do you understand? Oh, by the way, the Bible says that because of the relationship that Jesus had with the father at that time while he was on the earth and because we're in Christ and he's in us, we have that same relationship right now. Because we're in Christ and we're in the father and he's in us, We are to live totally dependent on the Father for everything. We're not to make a decision, yes or no, without checking with God on everything, and we're to only do what the Father says. If he says no, we don't do it. If he says wait, we wait. If he says yes, we move forward. Oh, but when we move forward, we move forward trusting that he will do his works through us. But many of us still walk around as little gods trying to live our lives for Jesus. It's not what he wants. And go back here in John 14, uh, go back to John chapter 5, look at verse 19, look again at something Jesus says. Jesus in John 5, verse 19 said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he'll show him, so you may marvel. Folks, I hope you understand this. Jesus, when he walked on the earth, in order to be the sinless sacrifice, in order to be the human sinless sacrifice, limited himself in some way that he didn't exercise his own authority. But he lived totally dependent on the Father for direction, for purpose, and for power. When it was time. And if Jesus had no rights, who were we to walk around and claim our rights? If he humbled himself, didn't Paul say, have this mind in you, which was also, or which is yours in Christ Jesus? Even though he was God, he didn't claim equality with God, something to be grasped, but he took the form of, of a servant. Right now, you're going through stuff, and you probably have thought to yourself, well, I don't like this. I don't want to do it. Is it the Father's plan for your life? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said, I prayed three times that this thorn in my flesh would be removed, and God said no each time. And God showed me that he had a reason for it, and therefore, he wasn't going to take it away. And Paul says, then I'll embrace it. This is the plan that God has for my life. I'm okay with it. I want to say something to you ahead of time. Therefore, if it happens, you'll know that I meant it when I said it beforehand. Thank God that he healed me of cancer. But does that mean that my cancer never will come back? It could. I go see the oncologist again in October. As far as I can tell, I don't feel a whole lot of stuff going on, but I don't know. And God may, in his purposes and for his reasons, allow my cancer to come back. And if that's his purpose, we'll walk through that when it comes and we'll say, Lord, what do you got in mind? And I've decided ahead of time to just see what he says and do what he says. But many of us, unfortunately, still walk around saying, I'll be willing to let God do this, but I won't let God do this in my life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, those who are led of the Spirit are the sons of God. If Jesus humbled himself and only did what the Father had for him to do, and he didn't do anything in his own authority, what is God expecting of us? To do nothing in our own authority, but to check with him and to walk with him. And, to be, and wait a minute, I think we heard at the beginning of this lesson, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the three purposes that God led the nation of Israel into the wilderness was to humble them, To remind them of their dependence on God, to test them and show them what was in their hearts, and to teach them how to hear from God and to follow what He said. That's what God's doing in all of our lives as well. The second thing we see back in Matthew chapter 4 is that Satan comes and he tells Jesus, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, Throw yourself off because you know you're not going to die. I mean, if you're the son of God, then you can't die. God can't die. Oh, and by the way, if you remember Jesus, the scripture says in Psalm 91 that uh, he's going to command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Scripture says that you can do this. By the way, let me just say this real quick. Beware of the fact that Satan knows scripture very, very well. And he can twist it. And take it out of context, which he does in this passage. I don't have time to take you there, but if you go to Psalm 91, look at the context, you'll see it's not talking about it the way that Satan used it. And if you don't know Scripture, you're going to be easily led astray in these days that we live in by preachers and teachers and false prophets who take a verse here or a verse there and twist it to say things that the Bible doesn't say. And the Bible says there's going to be doctrines in these last days taught by demons they're pretty crafty, don't you think? Folks, you need to know the Word of God. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're studying the Scriptures. Keep feeding on the Word of God. We're going to end with that in a little bit. But By the way, Jesus could have easily proven who he was by some grand performance, couldn't he? Instead of submitting to the Father's plan of him first being the suffering servant, it had to be a temptation. I mean, he is God. He could have, he could have done something like that where everybody would have said, Whoa, we believe! Instead of having to go through all that he had to go through, but the Father had a purpose and a plan, go to Matthew chapter 26. Look at verses 47 through 54. It says while he was still speaking, this is Jesus who was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, "'Greetings, Rabbi,' and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, "'Friend, do you do what you came to do?' And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of the who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, "'Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and that he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels?' But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? A couple things I want you to see. Could Jesus have just called all these angels and miraculously, boom, it was taken care of? Could have, but he didn't. Other things you could do to fix your situation? Probably, but don't. Well, God wants me to do something. God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, folks. The Bible says God helps those who realize they're helpless realize he's everything oh and by the way did you catch what jesus said he didn't say don't you realize i could call 12 legions of angels how did he word it i could appeal to my father why did jesus who was god say don't you realize i could have appealed to my father instead of just saying i could have called 12 legions of angels how come Yeah, and he's living his life on earth as a human, submitting to the Father in everything. He could have, but he didn't. And even then he said, don't you think I could have asked the Father? And then when it happened, the Father would have been doing it, not me. I do nothing of my own authority. When Jesus walked on the earth, oh, you're going to see in a little bit that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. We've just seen it in Hebrews chapter 2, that everything's been put under his feet. We don't see everything in subjection to him just yet, but everything's under his feet at this moment. By the way, real quick, if that's the case, which it is, where everything's under Jesus' feet, but the scripture says we don't see everything in subjection to him. Beware of those people in Christianity today. say that they have all authority. And I bind Satan and I cast you out. And I was at this one place recently and this the weather was going to be bad. And this lady said, I, I tell the storms to go away because in Christ I have authority over the... I'm like, oh, don't, don't. I had to bite my tongue in that situation because the prophet in me wanted to totally correct her, but I just left it alone. If Jesus isn't exercising full authority, don't think you have full authority yet. God's allowed Satan to be doing his, his stuff for a reason and for a season. Go to Matthew 27 real quick. Look at verses 36 through 43. And I want you to look closely at who's talking. Matthew 27:36 through 43. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Does that sound familiar? Come down from the cross. So also, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The crowd was all yelling, If you're the son of God, come on down from the cross. Folks, that's the exact same temptation that Satan came at him with there in the in the the wilderness when he said, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Do some miraculous thing. Jesus said, No. Could I? Yes. But I'm not gonna. Because the Father has a plan and a purpose, and I'm submitting myself to the Father's purpose and plan. Go back to Matthew 4. And we see the third temptation again. This doesn't even seem to be a temptation at all on the surface. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, on the surface, this doesn't look like a temptation because Jesus knows who Satan is, correct? So Jesus probably wouldn't be tempted to bow to Satan, But the temptation's the same thing that we've already seen. Satan, when he comes to him and says, turn these stones into bread. Don't wait on the Father. Take care of it yourself. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. You don't have to do the Father's plan for showing everybody who you are and proving who you are. I know the Father wants you to prove who you are by being obedient to the Scriptures and fulfilling the Scriptures who have talked about who you are, but you don't have to do it that way. Oh, and I know that the Father's purpose for you to come is for you to come and be the sinless sacrifice and be the Savior of the world, so then all authority will be given to you, but you don't have to go to the cross to do that. I've got authority right now over the whole world. And by the way, he did. Because Jesus even said in John chapter 14, he said, the ruler of this world is coming. But he has no claim on me. Satan says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down to me right now. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do all that. What you're heading for, what you're looking for, what you're supposed to be getting, you don't have to do it the Father's way. You can just bow down to me. And Jesus said, "Uh -uh, Scripture says you're only to bow to God. I'm not going to bow to you. Last night as we were talking about this in our Tuesday night Bible study, this lady said, Jesus told Satan he had a better deal. Isn't that awesome? Because you know what the better deal is? The better deal is this. By submitting himself to the Father's plan, he not only could get all the kingdoms of the world but he would get us as well. If he submitted to Satan's plan, Satan might have given him all the kingdoms of the world because he's God. God couldn't take him. But we wouldn't have been a part of it. Because if he had bowed to Satan, he would have sinned. And if he sinned, there's no sinless sacrifice and we're in trouble. We're doomed. We're doomed. Jesus said, I'm going to wait on the Father's plan because the Father's plan is better. It's hard at this time, but ultimately, it's far better. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 20 through 32. Actually, we'll start in verse 27. John chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Jesus answered them, the uh, sorry, that's verse 23, go to 27, I'm sorry. He says, uh, um, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come, for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus, in going to the cross and fulfilling the Father's plan to this, every detail, and submitting himself to the Father's plan, accomplished everything Satan wanted to offer him, and at the same time defeated Satan. He was cast out. We all know Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, right before he says, Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them and commanding them and teaching them to obey everything I've said. What did he say right there at verse 18? All authority has been given to me. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're not going to turn there again. Remember, verses 5 through 9, everything's been put under his feet. We don't see it under everything in subjection to him, but everything right now has been put under Jesus' feet. We know in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where we just read through verses 8, but we know in verses 10 and following that because Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to the Father's plan, even though that meant death on a cross, the Lord has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Jesus got everything Satan offered him without having. Sin, but he had to wait and suffer in this life for God's purposes. I've heard so many people over the years excuse their sin by saying, But Pastor, God would want me to be happy. Not necessarily. Paul says, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. Yeah, we're going through all sorts of stuff, but it's light and momentary in comparison to what? Folks, are you willing to humble yourself and say, even if he slay me, yet will I trust him? Or will you fall prey to the enemy's temptation to take the shortcut, do it the easy way, exercise your authority? Or are you willing to humble yourself like Jesus did all the way through and trust that God has the better deal? Go to Revelation. Actually, just write this one down. There's a couple more things I need to do in the time we have left. Write this one down. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18, we see at the end of the tribulation period when the seventh trumpet is blown, it says, now the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That's when we're gonna see everything in subjection to him. That's when every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. At the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back to this earth and he sets up his kingdom on the earth and everybody acknowledges that he's God, that's when it's all going to be ultimately hit. It's all his now. But for his reasons and for his seasons, he's allowing Satan to have some sway, some authority for a short period of time. But Satan's been defeated. He's on a leash. And so now our role is to be like Jesus and humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Father's purpose. He's going to put you through stuff to humble you, test you, and to teach you how to listen to him and follow every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how to be led of his spirit. Please note that each time Jesus responds to Satan He does so by focusing on God's Word. Don't miss that. Now, we've all heard this because people have taught on Matthew 4 and how each time Jesus quoted Scripture. But listen, I don't think we truly grasp this. Folks, God has already given us more than enough ammunition in His Word for our battle against Satan. If Jesus, who is God, who wrote the book... Who's not only God and could just say something and it would be authoritative in and of itself. Every time he was tempted, all he did was quote scripture. If that was Jesus' response, our response should be the same thing. But what we do is well, in this situation, I think, no, you gotta know what the word says. Jesus went to the Sadducees, they came with this question, they were gonna trip him up. And in Matthew 22, verse 29, he said this He said, You're wrong. You're in error because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And I think, honestly, a lot of the reasons why we make the mistakes we make is because we really don't know the scriptures. I'm going to say something to you, and I'm going to say it as lovingly as I can, because I know I'm talking to a group of people that will show up for a Bible study on Wednesday night. But the Christian church today is biblically illiterate, and it's getting worse and worse. Some of you grew up and heard the Bible stories in your church and learned the childhood Bible stories in Sunday school, but you know even now in our churches today, it's getting less and less. Actually, scripturally, as you're going to see in just a little bit, the Bible says that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, showed them from the Old Testament the things that were pointing to his coming and his death and his resurrection. And then after that, speaking to the New Testament believers, told them everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus sent his disciples back to the Old Testament and said there's a whole lot more still in the first five books of the Bible, still in the Psalms and in the prophets. There's a, still a lot more that's pointing to what's going to come next. Yet most Christians today, if they read their Bible, don't read the Old Testament. They just read the New Testament. And folks, let me just tell you, you need to understand the Word of God because it is powerful. You want further proof? Do you remember last time we were together? I know it's been over a month since we had Bible study. Remember the last time we were together when Jesus was being baptized And we looked at how the father spoke at his baptism and everybody knew it was the father speaking. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Remember that? And we looked in our study at the fact that the father wasn't saying, I'm proud of my boy. But he was quoting two Old Testament passages that pointed to the Messiah. Jesus had always been God from his birth. Even beforehand, he didn't receive the Holy Spirit at his baptism like some people try to teach. But at his baptism, the Son is there, the Holy Spirit is visibly evident with the dove, and then the Father booms his voice and the whole trinity says, this is the guy that the scriptures have been pointing to. If God the Father quotes his own word, it must be pretty important to him. Oh, by the way, when Jesus goes into the temple in the last week of his life and he's cleaning the money changers out and he's whipping people and chasing them out, he quotes scripture. I mean, he's God. He could have just said, get out of here! But he says, it's written... My house should be a house of prayer. By the way, you go back and take a look at that. You're going to find Isaiah 56 is where it is. And it's a prophecy about the millennial kingdom when all the nations are going to come to the temple and it's going to be a house of prayer. In other words, he's saying, you guys are doing this all in the Gentile section of the temple. You're not even letting the other nations come and worship. But one day they're all going to be able to come and worship in this place. But then he says, but you've made it a den of robbers. And for years, I just thought he was saying, hey, you guys are cheating everybody. No, he was quoting... From Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And in that prophecy in Jeremiah 7, if you remember from our study in Ezekiel, that's when they said the temple, the temple, the temple, we're fine because the temple's still here. And God says to them in their prophecy, don't think you're okay because the temple's still here. You're doing all this wickedness, and I'm going to destroy it. So when Jesus is cleaning out the temple, he says one day the temple's going to be a place where all the nations are going to come. But between now and then, it's going to be destroyed. And Jesus quoted his own word. In Luke chapter 16, I could go on and on. In Luke chapter 16, when Lazarus and the rich man's story Jesus tells him, and the rich man wakes in Hades and he sees Lazarus and he says, hey, tell Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. And of course, Abraham says there's a chasm between the two. There's no passing back and forth. So that blows away purgatory, by the way. And then... The rich man says, well, I'll tell you what, send Lazarus to go warn my brothers. And Abraham says, they, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to the word of God. He says, no, Father Abraham, they'll believe if someone comes back from the dead. And Abraham, with a lot of wisdom for a guy that's supposed to be sleeping, says, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. If they don't believe, he says, but this way, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. In other words, the rich man says, do a miracle so they'll believe. He says, no, everything they need has been put in this book. That's enough. Folks, you remember Ephesians chapter six, verse 17? Part of the armor of God is what? the sword of the spirit which is the word of god second timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 listen to that if you want to turn there i'm going to read it to you go to second timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 as we close here in just a bit in second timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything you need been given us in this book. And it's also been breathed out by God. Turn over to Hebrews. You're right there in 2 Timothy. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at 12 and 13. Don't miss what it says here. It says, the word of God is living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. By the way, when you stand before God... He's not going to say, well, I saw you do this and I saw you do that. First off, thank God we're not going to be judged for the night we get into heaven. That's already been taken care of. Jesus already took care of that. But when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, do you want to know what God's going to use to hold us accountable when he judges what we've done since salvation, whether we'll be rewarded for it or we lose the reward? I didn't know that was there. Um i blessed that you lived in America where everybody's got like five books in their house, five Bibles of different translations in their house, where Christian state radio stations are all over. You were inundated with my word. You just chose to fill your time with other things. I don't think we really understand the power of the word of God. Let me close with one last thing here. Go to Romans chapter 15. In all the years, I've never really kind of tied this verse into the importance of the Word of God until just recently when God showed it to me as I was doing my study. In Romans chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You hear what he said? We're supposed to be encouraging one another and building each other up. Not living for ourselves, but helping each other. Those of us who are strong need to help the weak. But how do we help them? We show them God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry so that we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness in their deceitful scheming, but we will all grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus the scripture says that those of us who are called by God to teach and preach the word of God, those of us who are more mature in the faith, have a responsibility to point people back to the Lord through the word of God. Someone's going through something, don't just hug them and say, they're there. Show them what the word says. Well, I don't know. Well, then, get going. We'll talk about this a little bit more when we get back together. Until then, I love you. We'll see you, th- see you next week.